Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The most important single question is, when will the money that you're investing, when will that money be spent? 60 years of investment wisdom from Charles Ellis, next on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. Funding provided by ClearBridge Investments, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, Strategus Asset Management, and Women Investing in Security and Education. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. The ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus said there is nothing permanent except change. Charles Darwin observed that in his trailblazing work on evolution more than 2,000 years later. His conclusion? It's not the strongest of the species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but the one most responsive to change. As the markets fluctuate around us, how much should investors change? Well, this week's guest has his own historical perspective on that question because he has lived through a momentous evolution in the markets. He is Charles Ellis, whose storied career started on Wall Street in 1963 after graduating from the Harvard Business School. He was a skeptical analyst during the go-go years of the 60s, founded Greenwich Associates, the top Wall Street consulting firm to major investment firms, institutions, and governments. He was an influential board member of Yale's endowment, advising its legendary head, David Swenson. He's taught advanced investment courses at both Yale and Harvard. And he has authored 20 investment books, including the classic Winning the Losers Game, now in its eighth edition, and the recently published Figuring It Out, 60 Years of Answering Investors' Most Important Questions, which we will discuss in this week's conversation. Since Charlie Ellis entered Wall Street, he has been an active observer of the many changes it has undergone, and as a result, he has altered his views, but says many on Wall Street have not. I asked him to describe the most significant changes that have occurred in the markets. The volume of trading on the New York Stock Exchange, just taking that as an example, back in the early 60s would have been 3 million shares a day. Now it's somewhere between 6 and 8 billion shares a day. That's an enormous change. Uh, Second change is back in the day, it would have been less than 10% was institutional trading. And of that 10%, most of it was local bank trust companies and insurance companies. Today, 90% of trading is done by institutions, and they are juggernaut, super smart, highly powerful, computer proficient, fully informed, very aggressive institutions. So that has been an enormous change. It used to be that you could have lunch with the management of a company and learn an enormous amount about what was going on in terms of their business strategy, their capital strategy, and what their earnings were going to be in the next year or so. And that was the reason you would have lunch together. And they thought they were doing the right thing. Well, today, that's no longer allowed. And Regulation Fair Disclosure, or Reg FD as it's usually called, says if you give any information to one investor that would be useful from an investment point of view, 
you are obliged to take responsibility for getting that information to all the investors that are in your securities. So the advantages that we used to find are disappeared. Another phenomenon is, of course, it used to be that we all had slide rules. Gee, that's cute. Now we all have computing power greater than a 360 when IBM brought out the 360 series of computers. It is astonishing what we have there. And then all of us have a Bloomberg terminal. Some people have a Bloomberg terminal at home. Some have Bloomberg terminal at work. Some people have a Bloomberg terminal at home, at work, and in the limousine that takes them back and forth. <laughs> you can get almost anything you want to know, almost any time you want to know, almost any way you want to know it, thanks to Michael Bloomberg's wonderful invention and the drive that he had to make it really, really great. And you think of the internet, what a way of gathering information. It used to be that there were maybe, maybe 5,000 people involved in active investing as analysts, portfolio managers, economists, and so on. Maybe 5,000. Now we know there are over 2 million people who are involved in that. And all that enormous flow of information goes piling through the internet and boom, out to all the people who have access to the internet. And candidly, everybody that would matter in investment management has access to the internet all the time. So we've enormously changed the inner workings of every part of the market. And as a consequence, the market in its ability to get the accurate pricing, and I don't say correct pricing, but the best pricing, that is the best that anybody could do with the information that could be available, gets awfully good. The purpose of a market is to get the right prices. And that's the most important change that's taken place, bar none. The best measure we've got now of how good the pricing in the market is, that somewhere between 85 and 90% of mutual funds fall short of the market rate of return for the type of investment that they're specializing in. Imagine that over a 15-year period, which is what we've got data for, 90% fail to keep up with the market after fees, costs, and, and transactions. And then for individuals, of course, is the taxes, which puts another damper on it. So that's the biggest change. Efficient market theory, is that what that's called? <laughs> it's increasingly coming to grips with efficient market theory. And the theory, you could have argued in 1963 was nice abstract theory, but smart people working very hard could beat it. And that's true. Uh, by 1975, it was getting harder. By 1985, it was getting a lot harder. And today, it's, it's possible. Of course, theoretically, it's very possible. But in practical terms, it just doesn't happen. And we're talking about really good investment management talent managing the different mutual funds. And the same thing would be true for any institutional funds. And then it'd be true, but even worse, for individual investors who don't have access to the same equipment the same information flows and stuff like that. So it's the markets have done a really great job of being accurate. They're not perfect, but they're getting better and better and better. And they're so much better that those of us who are real human beings just can't keep up. And the market participants piece of this, how have the market participants in the market changed? Oh, so many different ways. It's fun. When I was at Harvard Business School there in 1962 and three, there were no courses on investment management, none. 
There are now half a dozen different courses on various aspects of investment management, and everybody knows a lot and takes courses that fit to what their career ambitions are down the line. But everybody has access, uh, and that that is an enormous change. Then you think about other things. How many people had a CFA in 1963? Right, None. chartered financial analysts. Mm-hmm. There just wasn't wasn't available. It started to come available later, a couple years later. And now we've got hundreds of thousands of people who are chartered financial analysts where they've passed three really difficult examinations over a three-year period or longer. And uh, we've got at least that many people who are in the wings preparing to take those exams. So there's been a tremendous change in the typical knowledge that people have. When I first came into the investments world in the mid-60s, there were very, very few people who had an MBA. Now almost everybody who's a participant has an MBA. Many have a PhD, and some have an MD, PhD, and an MBA. (laughs) The the quality of education and the individual participants has just gone up and up and up and up. And the last thing is, uh, it doesn't, doesn't surprise you if you recognize the compensation is substantial, the excitement and interest and fascination of the work is substantial, and you have the privilege of not having to stop at 40, which would be typical for a trader, or 50, which would be triple, typical for an investment banker. But you could go on through your 60s, your 70s, your 80s, and I have friends in their 90s who are very deeply involved in investment management. And uh, that, that has a wonderful phenomenon of accumulating experience-based expertise. And so you take all of those different changes, you think Charles Darwin would be fascinating to see all these different increases in the typical talent of the people that are involved in investment management. And they're all over the place. One of the things that you note in figuring it out uh, is that, you know, while your views have changed, many views on Wall Street have not changed. So first of all, how have your views changed and what is Wall Street still sticking to that perhaps uh, they should adapt uh, to the new market conditions as well? My views have changed from believing deeply and with considerable excitement and a willingness to put in particularly long hours because I did believe it, that the market was open enough so that if you worked hard enough, you could do better. And it was so, yeah, when you I started. I believe it was. Yep. Those of us who were involved at the time did do better. And we did better by one or 200 basis points. And if you compound that over time, it was really worth the effort. And we had a wonderful time doing it, which was fun and exciting and interesting. But what was really important is that we were producing clearly superior investment results. And it was feasible in the markets as they were at the time. Boy, have there have been changes since then. And today, I think realistically, Nobody in his right mind would say it is feasible. I'll I'll grant that there are a few exceptions here and there. Jim Simons and his mathematical whiz-bang group, 100 people of PhDs in mathematics, they're they're doing things that are different. Uh, And over time, they've averaged out at significantly higher rate of return. I think small investment management firms with experienced analysts who really know their industries terribly well and have their own capital involved, as well as client capital involved, that they can do very, very well. And uh, the magnitude of their benefit, 
one or two hundred basis points. So one or two percentage points a, a year, which can add up cumulatively to a significant difference. You're right? darn right. Mm -hmm. And that, it can work out very, very nicely. But the reality is for most managers, particularly managers of large amounts of money, particularly managers of large amounts of money that are trying to do a diversified business, they are not able to do better than accept the market as it is and, in my view, index at low cost. How has Wall Street not adapted to the new market realities? Large numbers of institutions continue to operate the way they operated in the 70s. <clears throat> large, very large numbers of individuals operate the way their grandfathers operated. Do some homework on the weekend, put in a couple of orders on Monday or Tuesday, and try like the Dickens to beat the market. Or if you're going to use mutual funds, try to find the right mutual fund and see if you can find the right mutual fund and jump on board at just the right time. We're by nature, we want to do better. And we all have learned if you work harder, do your homework, you do better in class. If you train harder, you do better at sports. If you work harder at almost everything, it works out better. This happens to be one of those fields where if you're working harder, so is everybody else. If you're developing real skills, so is everybody else. And so that when you come back to compete with other people, you're only selling to people who know at least as much as you do, buying from people who know at least as much as you do, and trying to overcome fees and costs uh, when everybody knows. It's like playing poker with all the cards on the table, open face. Does you know active management have any place in individuals' portfolios at this point? In my view, absolutely. There's tremendous role for active management, but it's not operational management, day-to-day -day buying and selling. It's the active management of your thinking so that you develop the right long-term policy, taking active interest in the fact that index funds are the best bargain in town and the best way to go about investing for the long term. But being active and trying to understand yourself is really, really important. And boy, does that pay off. And let's talk about that because, you know, in figuring it out, 60 years of answering investors' most important questions. So what are some of the most important questions that uh, need answering? Well, the most important single question is, when will the money that you're investing, when will that money be spent? If it's going to be spent in the next two or three years, then the right way to invest is treasury bills, because you can't afford to take any risk of markets surprising you. If it's five, six, seven years, you might use mostly bonds. By the time you get out to 10 years or longer, you probably ought to be in almost entirely in equities. And only limit on that would you might say, well, I know that the markets might go up and down and I know that I'm going to have a need for some money in the short run. So I'll take a look at what is the difference between my income from dividends and interest and my need for spending. And I'll fill that gap with T-bills and bonds. I can understand that. But for anybody who's got a long-term investment, and most people, most of their lives are longer-term investors than they act on, uh, then they ought to be going where you can afford the ups and downs because you're not going to be spending the money. You're going to stay invested longer. And a typical person starts investing somewhere in their 20s, and they're still investing in their 80s. 
They may have been winding down in their 80s or 90s, but they're still investing. Now, if you take that time period, we're talking about 60, 70 years. And there's nobody who would think that you ought to invest in anything except equities if you're thinking that long. Same for 40 years, same for 20 years. Uh, and so there's a real reason for people to move primarily into equities for their retirement money or for money that they know they're not going to spend for a fair amount of time. If you have young children and you want to provide college education for those kids and it's 15 or 20 years before they're going to be going to college, fine. Recognize that you've got that much time. So most people would benefit a lot by re recognizing that the t amount of time you've got determines mostly what kind of investing you should do because it allows you to figure out, can you stand comfortably the ups and downs in order to get the longer rate of return at a higher level? Timing is everything, they say. And in the markets, certainly, if, if you retired and let's say, you know, in the early 1970s, you would not have recovered what you had invested in the market until the early 1980s. So there are periods of time, I think in the last 100 years, 30% uh, of the time the markets were flat or down. So, you know, you've got to kind of pick your spot. So how do you address that issue that even if a 20 or 30 year time horizon there have been periods of time when the markets have basically gone nowhere. True. But your best bet is to, because inevitably they do go somewhere thereafter. And, um, you know, while you, you can pick out the time periods, uh, there was ups and downs during those time periods and the net was flat. Uh, it still makes sense to be there in case and when the markets do rise. And if you add another two or three years onto those various quiet periods, sure enough, it pays off to have been there. And if you haven't been there, you won't catch it when the market comes favorably your way. One of your uh, themes uh, in general and also in figuring it out is, and you alluded to it, is to know thyself. And so one of the questions that an investor should be asking themselves is, you know, who are you? Do you want to explain that and why that's so important to uh, you know, successful financial outcomes? Sure. Let me start with an, an example that you might laugh at, but I think it's very informing. My mother and father received notice from an estate lawyer that they are, were going to inherit somewhere between fifty dollars and $60,000 from my father's parents' estate. They were delighted. Dad said to mom, you know, we don't need that money. We're getting along okay. Dad was a lawyer, and mom was a homemaker, and they, they had a very nice understanding of spending between the two of them, and they, they were able to get along on dad's income. He said, why don't we think about putting that money aside for the children and for their education? And the thought was, when we, as kids, grew up and were ready to go to college, if we could have some money and then earn some money in the summer and then mom and dad would be able to put up some money and then we could get a scholarship for some money, we'd be able to go to most any college we'd like to go to. And as it worked out, we went to Yale, Smith, and Stanford. 
Right. <laughs> and it was, it was a terrific experience. So what did my mother do to have that happy experience? She put the money in a bank checking account. And you say, wait a minute. The stock market during that period went up a lot. Yes, but my mother knew that stock markets go down a lot, too. She had just gone through the Depression and the Second World War. She'd also had the experience of being at college herself and getting a letter from her father saying, I'm a lawyer in a small town in the Mississippi Delta, and poverty has come to the Mississippi Delta, and I don't have any clients. And so I can't afford to pay your tuition anymore. So when you come home for Christmas vacation, bring everything with you. In tears, my mother walked away from the telephone and her friends said, what's happened to you? And she said, I've just gotten information from my father. I'm going to have to drop out of college. Oh, don't do that. Let's see if we can figure something out. So the fraternity, it was called a fraternity in those days. We'd call it a sorority now, Kappa Alpha Theta put up the money to pay the tuition. And if you looked at the tuition today, it said it was awfully small. And it wasn't a huge amount of money, but it was a couple thousand dollars. And it was the Depression, yeah. right. And the next 30 years, my mother was paying off those loans at eight cents a page typing or making little girls' dresses at a dollar apiece. So she knew how tough it could be if you couldn't afford to go to college. And so she said, look, there's enough here so we could do it. We want the kids to get a college education at a good college. So if we put it in a savings bank, they, the bank passbook says right in it, the bank reserves 28 days notice before distributing any called money. If you put it in the stock market, things go up and down, they go up down and it really hurts. So she put it in a checking account, got no return on it whatsoever, which sounds just awful. But the fact is, she knew what she wanted to accomplish. She knew when she wanted, when it was going to come due. And she figured out her objectives and invested, I think, just the right way to guarantee success with her objective. And I've always looked on that as, on the surface of it, absolutely loony, but in reality, smart as could be. It's, it, that's a very good example of knowing thyself, uh, any financial advisors would be saying, no, absolutely not. You should be investing for X, X many years in the stock market. And she was smart enough to realize, no, she knew when she needed the cash and she wanted it to be there. And so it was. She correctly defined the problem. Right. And then she correctly solved the problem. Uh, I'm a, in a very different situation. I've got an RMD on my 401k plan. I right, still, required minimum I, distribution. Mm-hmm. I'm still happy to tell you that I earn a reasonable income consulting on investing. The money that I need for spending, I'm able to earn. So if you looked at my portfolio, you might laugh and say, uh, tomorrow, Charlie, you're going to be 85. You must have a lot of bonds. And the answer is no, I don't have any bonds at all. Why not? Because I don't need to worry about the fluctuations in the stock market. I'm not investing for current spending, and I'm not investing for my wife's, and I'm not investing even for my children. I'm investing for my grandchildren. There are four of them, and they're all very bright, and their average age is 15. Their concept of the long term <laughs> goes way, <laughs> way out there. So, okay, uh, I'm investing for them, and I should take their point of view and be investing 100% in stocks because that's going to make the most sense 
long-term for them. And I recognize the stock market's been going down in the recent past, and it could go down again, and it could be very alarming and all that sort of stuff. But by the time those young people get to the level where they're wanting to spend it, it'll be a long time from now. And with a long time, stocks are the right place to be invested. One of the questions that investors ask is, you know, what position of my portfolio or what percentage of my portfolio should I have in bonds? And it sounds like it's up to the individual situation. But in general, what is your view of bonds? Not very enthusiastic. And why is that? Mm -hmm. Well, I look at the bond rate of return and then I deduct inflation, which is you have to do before you get a fair, real return. And it just is so low by comparison. I just don't think it's an attractive proposition for an investment. As a storage for six, seven, eight years, fine. Charlie Ellis, thank you so much for spending 63 years figuring it out uh, and sharing it with the rest of us in your new book, Figuring It Out. Thanks so much, Charlie. Thank you, Consuelo. At the close of every Wealth Talk, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is read Figuring It Out, 60 years of answering investors' most important questions. We just touched on a few of the essential investment issues Ellis addresses in his book. There are many more to read, ponder, and possibly act upon. By reading Figuring It Out, you will get the full benefit of the thoroughly researched, analyzed, and common sense observations from the wisest man on Wall Street. This is a treasure trove for investors. Next week, FBA New Income's veteran portfolio manager, Tom Atterbury, on the new investment opportunities leading them to reopen the fund to new investors. In this week's extra feature, Ellis shares his biggest financial mistakes and successes and the lessons learned from them. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for watching. We salute the Americans who have served and are protecting us now on this Veterans Day weekend. Make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.